Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week, going to guide you gently through another show and really delighted to be able to speak to a bit of a legend in the tech PR industry. It's Tim Dyson, who is CEO of Next15. And uh, Tim, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you uh, here and looking forward to chatting. Thank you for having me, Steve. Yeah, and uh, Frank Washcook's here, as usual, my co-host. And uh, how are you doing, Frank? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so Tim, tell us the story. You've been in the States uh, for 27 years. You came over, like most of us, just for a couple of years to see what it was like. But you've, you uh, came here to set up Text 100, which was one of the sort of pioneering tech PR companies and um now you're the ceo of a holding company based out on the west coast what's your what's your reflections on the journey because it's uh, so much change in the tech space in the pr space but and we're at a real high point now so when you look back what's your reflections on that uh, that 25 year plus journey it has been quite the journey i mean as you say i didn't really plan on coming and staying i think when you come to this market you you come with a relatively naive view of what America is. Um, you think of it as this big, brash country, you know, that, that sort of has got ideas slightly ahead of its station, especially if you come from England where everything is prim and proper. Um, but when you get into it, you realize how incredibly creative this country can be, how innovation is sort of strongly encouraged, how entrepreneurialism sort of starts to seep into your bones in a way that it didn't when you were in the UK. And you start to get more ambitious. And I think the more I've stayed here, the the bigger the ideas, you know, that have been brought to me, the bigger my appetite for those ideas have been. No, I think it's been a it's been a journey both from the business and for me personally. Yeah, and just the scale of the market, isn't it? That's what hits you when you when you get here. It's, uh, it's it is it's just a different game. It's where the action is basically, and uh, it's very um, compelling to stick around. and And I suppose by getting here in 1995, you that's like kind of the start of the internet, the web boom, the dot com era, and then the big social media platforms, cell phones, the rise of Google, Microsoft, just incredible tech stories that your agencies and Text 100, now known as Archetype and Outcast and Mbooth and others, have really kind of tracked this, those stories, haven't they? Because they've helped uh, help those brands and helped those industries tell the stories too. Very much so. I mean, we were we were always very fortunate that we, you know, our founding customer in Text 100 really was Microsoft. And you know, we got to work very closely with the leadership there, and it was a pretty exciting time in Microsoft's history. Um, and you felt like you were watching people building the pyramids, if you like. You felt like you were at this sort of really important stage in, you know, a, a part of civilization, if you like, um, you know, watching people build these foundation blocks for the future. And it's felt like that you know, has just simply carried on, as you say, with people like Google, Facebook, Amazon. Um, it's been fascinating to watch the ways that those companies have been built. Um, you know, you, you sort of always look at them and think at some point, surely they're going to stop 
wanting to grow, but they 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 don't. Um, they carry on innovating. They carry on growing in different ways, and they challenge you, you know, as a as a business person to sort of try and stay with them. I do remember years ago, one of the very senior people at Microsoft said to me, you know. You don't need to grow as quickly as we do financially, but you do need to grow as quickly intellectually. Um, and if you do, you know, you'll be a business partner for life. Um, unfortunately, we do still work with Microsoft, so we've somehow managed to hold true to that. But, but I think that is always the challenge for agencies working with high growth businesses is you need to be at least level with them in terms of thinking about how to evolve and grow as a business how that's going to impact their reputation, uh, you know, how it's going to change their relationship with customers and so on. Yeah. Do you think we celebrate that enough? Those amazing businesses on the West Coast principally that have changed the way everyone lives um, and and now have got a slightly tarnished reputation in some respects, you know? Yeah, I think I think the tall poppy syndrome, unfortunately, is always going to apply. Um, you know, I think. You know, every interesting, right? Every form of technology always comes with a problem. Um, you know, everybody always finds a way to use technology that is harmful. You know, we go back to the, you know, prank phone calls on, you know, as a kid growing up. Not that I was the one doing them, but, <laughs> but it's, but it, you know, that unfortunately, that is one of those truths about everything. Is there's always some person that's going to find a malicious use for something. I think there are some deeper societal challenges that come with the way that we are now using technology. You know, it is changing the way that kids grow up. It's changing the way that we all do our jobs, et cetera, et cetera. I think some of that responsibility does need to start to fall onto the people who are creating those technologies. And I think that's something that, you know, people like Google and Facebook are, are trying to wrap their arms around. Um, you know, I think they're looking at their role in society in a, in a much broader sense than they certainly used to. Um, I think they understand that responsibility, but I think it, it's hard from the outside for people to see the growth that those companies have gone through, the way that they've evolved, how difficult that is for them to really embrace. You know, they've been dealing with so much of their own internal change as they've grown so fast that to then take on this much bigger responsibility you know, to an outsider, it looks like a fairly easy thing to do. But I think for them, it's a really quite difficult challenge. Yeah, I agree. I think they are massive challenges. And if you look at Microsoft and Google, so they've kind of evolved beyond their pioneering founders, haven't they, to other execs who've taken the ball on to the next stage. And maybe that's what I've always said, that's what Facebook's got to do, but not that Mark Zuckerberg cares what I think. But uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. And, and, big stories that are going to continue over the next uh, few years for sure in that in your time what would you say the biggest high was and what was the biggest low because you know you, you've gone through so much and seen so much happen especially in the tech world um it's a good it's a good question i think you know watching watching microsoft grow in the early years was a and i was fortunate i got kind of felt like effectively got a front row seat you know i got to to do work with Gates and Balmer and all those guys, that was a huge high because it, it felt like actually they were really sort of not only was I watching them sort of develop all this amazing technology, grow this incredible business, um, but they were, they were really helping teach anybody that was with them, this is how to do it. You know, this was a company that ran in those days very much 
on a management by objectives basis. Let's not do anything unless we know what it is that we're trying to do. And that's, you know, if it's in, in down into PR, you know, Gates would be like, what's the headline? What's the headline that we're trying to get out of this story? Because if you couldn't write in the headline, he wasn't doing the interview. Um, you know, and so even if, in other words, even in a corner like communications, that was how they ran the company. But you, you got to see that that was how they did everything. And that was a fascinating, you know, it was like doing an MBA um, at speed with some of the most incredible people in the world. Um, you know, I think the, the lows in some cases came where you saw um, some of those companies really stumble, you know, where they where they did make mistakes, where Microsoft, you know, with the antitrust stuff, it just did not wrap its head around it. Um, you know, and you've seen in some cases, you know, Facebook making similar kind of stumbles, if you like, where it's just not reading the room. It's not understanding how the world is seeing what they're doing and isn't grasping uh, the enormity of the challenge that's in front of them. And I think that's the part where on one level you can understand why they they see the world that way because you can see it through their lens, but also you tend to be this, you know, because you're an outsider, because you're a consultant, you see it through the other lens, which is this is how the other audiences are, are, are understanding what you're doing. And it looks bad guys. You've got to have to do something. And it's that unwillingness to change that, you know, sometimes is, is just very hard to watch as a consultant. You know, you're, you're seeing a company that, you know, Part of the reason that they've been so successful is because they're so insular. They do not pay attention to their competitors. They do not pay attention to, you know, some of those outside voices because it's what keeps them incredibly focused. But unfortunately, that sort of blinkered approach sometimes catches up with you. And I think, you know, when you see that happen as a consultant, it's very hard to take. Yeah, that's interesting what you say about Bill Gates, because if you take him and Steve Jobs and even nowadays Elon Musk, they very much do get the power of communication, don't they? And they do. They are kind of their chief comms officer or a chief storyteller. Um, yeah. Now, Elon Musk does it in a very different way. He, he, does, he doesn't have a PR team. He just puts a tweet out or whatever, but he's kind of doing the same thing, isn't he? And you could argue that Mark Zuckerberg is a different personality and that was never his forte. He was very, and they're all, they're all single-minded, just like you say. Yeah, for sure. How do you think the tech PR world has changed? Because it's, you know, I guess when you came over, it was very much not formulaic, but there was a formula to do it, but the playbook has changed. The media environment has changed incredibly. Where do you think we're at now in, in, in the tech PR world? It's interesting. When I, you know, when I was sort of growing up in the industry, there was a very, you know, important and sizable uh, set of media just devoted to technology. You know, the likes of PC Week magazines, E-Week, e as I think it then evolved into, and PC Magazine and PC World and a whole bunch of these things. And they were so, like doorstops, weren't they? Absolutely. They were huge publications. You know, EMAP and VNU in the UK, you know, made a lot of money out of these, these publications. And it was very, very important in the tech world that you that you had a dialogue with that. And in fact, I remember at one point, Microsoft got kind of off track and was so enamored with talking to sort of the daily publications, you know, the, the London Times or the Financial Times or the New York Times or whatever it would be, that the trade media sort of got a bit upset or feeling a bit left out um, and it came back to haunt them. You know, I think the the way that the media has evolved has inevitably changed the way that communications work. You know, 
tech brands like every other brand has sort of become its own publisher in so many different ways. Um, and I think it's also meant that they've also just become much more real time in the way that they think about communications as opposed to, you know, it used to be a very planned exercise. You know, you would create these very long-term plans for the brand. I remember with Microsoft, you know, we would sit down at the beginning of the year and create this, effectively this, this plan as to how we wanted to, you know, promote the company, its products and the rest of it over the course of a 12-month period. I'm, I'm sure those exercises still persist, but, you know, everything is now disrupted on an hourly, you know, minute-by-minute basis. Um, and those plans very quickly, you know, evolve, get get destroyed and so on. I, I think they've also just become way more integrated. It used to be very siloed. It used to be, you know, it was really just media relations with a few other bits and pieces attached. Now everything is incredibly integrated. Um, you know, you, you do not do anything without thinking about, you know, how is this going to integrate into those other as- aspects of our marketing activities. I think also inevitably it started to get linked into sales. Um, you know, when I started in this industry, you know, sales was something distant to to communications very often. You know, I mean, it, there were some companies that that combined those things, but the vast majority they were they were never connected, and even advertising wasn't really that connected in some areas. Now everything comes back to sales. You know, and a, a CMO will have a sales budget. You know, they will be tasked with actually achieving a certain amount of sales. And in some tech companies, that's in the billions of dollars. And so not surprisingly, you know, that focuses the mind when it comes to what are we actually doing? Is this going to, yes, this might create a nice headline, but will that headline actually encourage somebody to purchase something? Will it push them through our sales funnel? So I think the task the task hasn't massively changed. The way it connects to other things and how it's measured, those are the things that have really changed. Yeah, and then tell us about the last year because this has been an extraordinary couple of years, obviously, with COVID, with lockdown. Last year, we're doing our agency business report that agencies had an incredible year of growth. And Next15, I think, did 15.7% organic growth, so it's very strong. You made a, a keynote acquisition of a, a, an en- a agency called Engine. Tell us about last year and tell us about uh, how you assess it. It was it was a very strong year for us in every area. You know, the, the communication side of our business, as you say, uh, which is in our uh, what we call customer engagement segment of our business. Yes, that grew. You know, fifteen point seven percent organically. The rest of the business actually grew faster than that, um, which which tells you that at the moment marketing is still much more enamored with uh, some of the other areas. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, particularly in areas that relate to sales, uh, our customer delivery side, you know, which is where the rubber meets the road, if you like, which is where sales and marketing intersect. That part of our business grew even faster. That was in the forty plus percent range, you know. So. I think you've got to look at the communication side in the context of of how the rest of marketing is is evolving. And at the moment, communications is still incredibly prized part of the relationship that you know we have with the brand. But other areas are are increasingly becoming just as important. Uh, and I think that creates an interesting challenge for communications, especially if you know if the economy does slow down uh, in the way that everybody seems to be predicting 
it'll be interesting to see how well areas like communications, uh, other areas of advertising and so on, some of the paid media areas, how well they hold up and how well some of these other higher growth areas uh, perform. I mean, what we saw through COVID when there was, you know, quote unquote, a, albeit pandemic related recession, um, we saw communications hold up reasonably well, but we saw some other areas just fly through. And so the, there is a you know a perspective that that could that could repeat itself um, if things slow down later this year. Yeah, although the comparables will be tougher because it was so good last year. But just a quick final word about Engine for US viewers, listeners sure. who don't know as much. Um, yeah, I mean, so the Engine business was you know a business where they developed that partly through acquisition, partly organically. It had been sold to a private equity company. We we acquired the UK side of that entity there is still a u.s side to it although the u.s side is much more focused around advertising and programmatic the three businesses in the uk were a business transformation business a creative uh, an advertising business and mhp mischief which is a communications business they're all roughly sort of 30 million sterling revenue businesses it's been a really good acquisition for us very very happy with the way it's integrating into our entity you know, they, they're a business that, certainly in the case of MHP Mischief, has got an incredible reputation. You know, they in fact got, I think, PR Week's Agency of the Year last year. They, you know, they are uh, one that we would want to invest in quite significantly over the coming years because we could see a lot of growth potential in mainland Europe and, and potentially the U.S., yeah, looking forward to seeing what you do with that and uh, an iconic company and uh, a big acquisition. So, yeah, great to chat, Tim. And uh, we could go on for ages actually talking about the history. It's, 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 it's amazing <laughs> what, what you've seen. But um, we'll get your input on some of the stories. Frank, some really big agency stories this week. Omnicom and Publicis put their Q1 numbers out and, and they're reflecting a, a, a good Q1, despite the fact that that is a tough comparable. Yeah, let's talk about Omnicom's PR first. They are up 14.1% in the first quarter um, to about $361 million. So, again, that's that's up on uh, a Q1 2021 where the rebound was starting from COVID-19 but still feeling the effects of it. So uh, Omnicom in general, it saw organic revenue growth across all of the business sectors. Advertising was up. So uh, you could look at it and say the PR outperformed advertising if you wanted to. And there are two CRM uh, divisions. We definitely do want to, Frank. Yes. Yes. Unless we're on on campaign. If I had my campaign hat on, I'd be saying it's something different. Right. So the two CRM divisions up 20.3% and 6.3% in brand consulting. CRM and brand consulting up 13.8%. So uh, a good quarter overall. If you've been keeping an eye on their stock today, uh, it's up today based on the news. One interesting thing about it, you know, CEO John Run said there was strong momentum uh, for the holding company in general. But, uh, you know, you're seeing this in a bit of a trend here with all of the earnings. Uh, and we'll talk about Publicis next, but noting some caution about uh, the war in Ukraine and the possible impacts that it's going to have. So getting on to Publicis, 10.5% growth in Q1. That is for the holding company uh, in general. That's up to about uh, 2.8 billion euros. All of their regions are up. The U.S. is up 8.8%. Europe's up almost 15%. Asia up 14%. Now, we don't have uh, specific numbers for this one for MSL or CAC-CNC. 
but we can also say that the Publicis numbers are up on the 2.8% growth they saw in first quarter of 2021. So strong start to the year for both holding companies, but Publicis also noting some caution uh, on the situation in Eastern Europe too. I think I saw a story about Philip Krakowski at IPG, his salary virtually doubling, um, mainly due to bonuses, but, and uh, John Rann is well known as the highest paid holding company exec. So Tim, did you give yourself a massive pay rise as well? Do you, do you watch how the holding companies are doing and, and uh, does that get reflected in your business? Uh, so I took a 3% pay rise. I didn't, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't take a pay rise last year at all um, and didn't take a bonus last year actually at all. So um, it just didn't feel right last, this time last year, even though our, actually our business did, did really well and we repaid furlough money and we actually, anybody who'd taken a salary cut, you know, during COVID, we repaid that and that, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I it, it, it's these are very interesting times, and I think the you know the growth that uh, those guys are seeing. You know, we've typically grown slightly faster than the holding companies, and that certainly seems to be the way that things are still playing out. Um, you know, overall, um, you know, I think that's to some degree the law of the big numbers, right? You know, our, our, our business is clearly smaller than theirs. Um, you know, but we're you know we're expecting another very very strong year of growth. You know, our analysts, we, we did revenues of, of just over 360 million sterling this last year. We're expected to do, I think it's roughly 520 this next year. So that's pretty significant growth. Um, uh, you know, I think, I think the market at this point uh, for the kinds of products and services that are in, you know, our portfolio and, and obviously in, in others remains incredibly strong. Um, you know, I think the one thing that COVID really taught brands was what worked and what didn't. Um, and I think, you know, the good companies, and I, and I mean the holding companies here, um, also kind of made sure that they learned from that. You know, they, they kind of slimmed down the parts of the business that maybe weren't as helpful to customers or even got rid of them, um, but really honed in and invested in the areas where they could see this is really helping the customer grow or deliver sales in this area or, you know, improve its relationship with customers, whatever it's trying to do. Um, and I think that's why you've got this very, to some degree, that's why you've got this really healthy growth coming out now is that what COVID did was it, it sort of weeded out some of the parts of the marketing mix that weren't actually that effective. And now what customers have are a lot of, tools where they're like, we know this really works. We know it drives sales or it drives the share price or whatever it is that we're, we're focused on. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what Tinder Public and WPP do. And uh, there's loads more of this content coming very shortly in our agency business report, including words from Tim and John Wren and all the other holding company leaders too. So look out for that on the 3rd of May. And then another uh, old friend, I guess, Martin Sorrell at S4 Capital. He's been talking to our colleagues at Campaign, hasn't he, Frank, about the delay in their financials? Yes, and he is quick to assure everybody that there is uh, there's nothing material here, and uh, the situation nothing to will, see be, here. will be sorted out very quickly. Is that it? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. That's the gist of it. Yeah. I'm not sure there's a lot more he can say as a public company CEO, unfortunately. Yeah, I was going to ask you this, Tim, because it's fairly unprecedented to have your numbers delayed once, but twice. I, I can't remember that. 
Patents. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I remember once we went through something years ago where we had an exchange rate issue that required us to uh, delay the audited numbers, but we were allowed allowed to release unaudited figures. And I think that was the only surprise on that was that he didn't release un something unaudited if it wasn't that material. Um, but, you know, these days, I, the, the one thing in, in their defense that I would say is the process of getting an audit these days is, I mean, it was never a straightforward process. Now, with all the controls and procedures, it is a nightmarish process. And, you know, no auditor wants to be, especially in the UK, sort of caught out. Um, they are more buttoned up than ever. So, you know, I, I think it's easy to sort of point fingers and say, wow, that's a bit strange and, 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 and so on. But knowing how complex that process is and how time consuming it is, I'm not, you know, I'm willing to certainly give them some room on that one. Yeah, they had so many acquisitions in so many parts of the world, so many bits to bring together. So, yeah, we'll obviously we'll track that as well. Frank, there's a federal mask mandate was removed um, and uh, it was kind of interesting, wasn't it? Because especially if you were on a flight, talk us through that one. <laughs> a bit interesting. I, I might say a bit awkward, too. Uh, you know, you're seeing all these videos of some people cheering and some people looking a bit horrified. Um, <laughs> You know, seeing a bit, a lot of a lot of social media anecdotes about um, you, you know <laughs> people being a little bit overzealous to get the masks off and you know get a drink or two down uh, on the flight as well. So um, yeah, so what happened? The gist of it is a federal judge in Florida uh, essentially struck down the transportation mandate uh, that was being upheld by the Biden administration. They can appeal. Uh, interesting how they are. Um, politically playing this saying that uh they they could appeal but only if the cdc uh decides that there's enough of an emergency where they have to appeal so uh passing the buck a little bit there um on uh to the cdc to to make the tough decision on this now it, look it's interesting because um this is another situation where people are saying there's a ton of confusion about there about when to wear a mask and when not to philadelphia has been keeping its own uh mask mandate in place uh, despite the judge's uh, ruling. And, and this is all taking place with the context of, uh, you know, not a spike in cases, but a, a pretty significant rise in cases due to that BA2 variant of Omicron uh, that we should note hospitalizations are also remaining low. So, you know, that's the broader context here. Um, I, I've always been a skeptic of people saying that they've been confused by the, the mask mandates or when do I have to wear a mask or when not, because I, you know, look, I think, I think, you know, this, if you live in New York, you tend to have a mask on you, uh, yeah. at all times. Uh, you know, if you have to take the subway and you didn't expect it, or if you, uh, there are definitely still shops that, you know, say they prefer you to wear a mask when you're inside and if you want to go inside one of them. So, I mean, you tend to have a mask on you at, at all times here, and, and I don't think it's that much of a burden to carry one around. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily buy that, that people are that confused or, uh, you know, that traumatized by the latest set of directions. No, I agree. The, uh, if you're on the MTA, I was on the subway this morning, you're wearing a mask. 95% of people still are. 
And actually, in in my neighborhood, people are wearing masks in the street uh, over the last couple of weeks. And I was walking down Sixth Avenue yesterday, and I'd say 20% of people had masks on in the street. And obviously, you've got foreign travelers back as well. In China, they're in harsh lockdown in, in big cities. So, yeah, Tim, I suppose the interesting thing is for the airlines, how did they communicate it? Because it was like, do they do anything immediately? And um, it seems like they all just, one of them went and then they all decided to do that. And you've been, you, you were saying that you're, you're back traveling quite a lot now as well. Yeah, it's, it's, I think the airlines are caught in a really difficult spot with that whole thing um you know they, they clearly seem to feel the brunt of this i mean there's we still see so many of these stories of you know passengers misbehaving um yeah. you know, all these horrible videos and how abusive they get to the stewards and stewardesses which is you know it's got to be miserable for those people um uh you know i recently traveled to the uk and you know i sitting on a flight for 10 hours wearing a mask is no fun but you know, everybody did it. There wasn't, you know, there was nobody creating a scene about it. Um, you know, and, and as, you know, as Frank was saying, I don't think it's a particularly big ask when you know that there are people whose health could be at risk. Um, you know, I was going to go and meet, see my mom while I was there, an 88-year-old woman. And I didn't want to particularly bring the virus to her, having not seen her for two years. and think that would be the appropriate gift. Um, you know, yeah, I, I think unfortunately the airlines are caught in a really tough spot. Um, you know, if the law suddenly says there is no mass mandate, then it's very hard for them to suddenly say to customers, you know, this thing that we've been clearly fighting for so long, we're just going to carry on doing it. You know, and and they're you know they're still struggling for revenue, especially with fuel prices the way they are. So I think they don't want to do anything that's going to turn away a customer at this point. You know, and not surprisingly, they all said it clearly. If you would like to carry on wearing a mask, we'd love you to carry on doing it. Uh, you know, and that is the way it should be. I, th- I mean, I, I'm, I'm disappointed in that ruling uh, for, for a whole bunch of personal reasons. But you know, I can see why businesses are struggling with how to respond. Yeah, I don't, nobody wants to sit on a flight for seven hours or whatever it is wearing a mask. On the other hand, you don't want to get COVID either. And now we'll probably, and I agree with you that the flight staff were on the front line of some egregious behavior and really yeah. just got out of control and it's not, not in their job description. So I guess we'll now get people facing off against those who do choose to wear a mask, which again is a personal choice and it's freedom and the other side of it but anyway yeah interesting stuff i don't really see much point in them appealing to frank's point either there's a other, <laughs> other battles to fight at the moment aren't there indeed um frank there were some netflix numbers that weren't too good for them and and some projections that were even worse now is that just a case of you know, they're up against incredible comparables because we've all been watching Netflix over the last two years assiduously. and uh, Or is it uh, more of a fundamental problem? They put the prices up, didn't they? So what do you think? Oh, I think it's, I think it's well beyond uh, just bad comparables in this case. This is one of those financial results stories that um, it, it just sort of shocks you, the severity of it. It seems like nobody saw it coming. You know, the, the latest around the stories of Netflix were all about, you know, the streaming wars and, and Apple Plus's emergement emerging and, and winning the, you know, winning the Oscar for best picture. Uh, but what happened was the, just the, this, the Q2 numbers uh, for, for Netflix losing subscribers. And the first time they've lost subscribers in I think 10 years, 
uh, just shocking to investors and to analysts. Um, and uh, the shares are down 36% on Wednesday when we are recording this. And that means that uh, Netflix has lost more than $56 billion from its market cap, which is remarkable. Now, uh, just just as big of a weight, um, just as big of, of, of a weight on this was the prediction for the rest of the year, which was the Netflix saying that they, they are going to lose uh, an astronomical number more uh, subscribers through the rest of the year. Um, and I, I, you know, I was really surprised by this. I mean, I think that, um, you know, there, there's a real quantity versus quality argument to be made here, isn't there, when you when you compare netflix and just how much is on a streaming service versus you know hbo or versus apple plus or other things uh that might have more you know premium shows so uh interesting to see if the market swings more in that direction over the coming yeah they've invested billions in content but that's uh they're going to probably have to lean back a bit on that and they're going to look at advertising options as well which was one of the yeah. advantages of using here's a great number here's a great number from this the company claims that 100 million dollar 100 million additional households are using shared passwords around the world which now that that feels like a bit of a blame game to me 30 and million using you, excuse for years haven't they? yeah 30 million u.s and canadian households using a shared password uh to access content so. never do that That's shocking behavior um tim tech stocks have to show growth don't they analysts don't like it when they don't see that so we've seen that story over the years with twitter and and, and other tech companies and uh, and once they get on a downward spiral it can be very difficult to pull back and, and go back in the right direction i think this is sort of netflix nokia moment i, I don't know if you recall there was a, a period where nokia could do no wrong and everybody had a nokia cell phone and you know, that was, and then, then there became a point where Nokia's only point of innovation was they gave you a phone in a different color, you know, and then you realized, okay, they've run out of ideas. And then the Blackberry came along and then the iPhone came along and, and, and we know how history evolved in that respect. The technology was there, the customers were there, the money was there. There was no reason why Nokia couldn't have been Apple. They just couldn't see that world, couldn't figure it out, couldn't make it happen. And I think that's that's now sort of Reed Hastings' moment. He's going to have to try and figure out the next Netflix. I, I think the, the advertising model is fine. I, I, I think, you know, but he's, he's at a point where, you know, pretty much everybody in the world who could have taken on a net Netflix subscription has pretty much done so. You know, yes, I'm sure there are a few hundred million more subscribers out there that might pay a different price point or whatever it might be. But I think they need to figure out the next big business model if they want to go for the next level of exponential growth. Otherwise, you know, you're just a different version of cable. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I don't, I don't think that model is really, you know, is, isn't going to be one that you're going to carry on delivering amazing growth and amazing profitability on, you know, they've, they've done an incredible job and you, you, you cannot deny that, you know, they've come from a business that, you know, even 10 years ago, people barely knew who they were to now they are this global brand with incredible power. You know, their dominance of Hollywood is, is, is unbelievable, but they are now caught in this moment of now, okay, we grew to the point where everybody has that now what? what's next and i and i think that is that's always a tough challenge right i think it's the same challenge that facebook is going through yeah i think you're right 
they were mailing out DVDs, weren't they? And they made that pivot, and they've got to do do it again. And yep. otherwise, they'll be the next blockbuster, <laughs> which is what they came <laughs> Indeed. Um, Frank, we're recording this on 4.20, uh, a, a well-known day for pot smokers or however you consume your cannabis. Um, is that, uh, are there any interesting brand activations around that caught your eye? Well, that's the funny thing about it is that there are, uh, I, I haven't seen as many being pitched to me or members of our team as much as in past years. And, and I do wonder uh, if the shine is off uh, 420 as a brand holiday, so to speak. Now, I did see some interesting analysis this week about uh, whether it is um, advantageous to be a food brand that delivers on uh, 420. I'll leave you to figure out why that, that might be. But um, <laughs> it's uh, about whether it's an advantage for them those days. And uh, I'm sure there will be some numbers on, you know, uh, Dorito sales that we can dig into after. But not a ton of, of cannabis-related or 420-related pitches coming our way this year. And, and maybe it's just because of the mass legalization. Uh, of cannabis across the country, uh, where I, I saw a state that it's only completely illegal in 12 states now. Uh, so all of those things combined, I, I wonder if 420 is now so mainstream, it, maybe it's not edgy enough for uh, for a lot of brands. Yeah, I think anymore. you're right. You know, whenever, whenever I went to San Francisco, that you would, the smell of cannabis was one of the big differences. But now it's everywhere in, in New York and, and everywhere else. So uh, I don't know. What do you think, Tim? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, it, it was funny when you kind of posed before we were doing this, whether we were going to talk about it. I, I had to kind of double check that that was what you really wanted to talk about, because it does feel like it's gone from being something a few years ago where every brand was clamoring to come up with a clever way. Certainly every consumer product brand was trying to come up with a clever way to sort of use this date. And it doesn't, it does seem to have dropped off the agenda. I don't know if, if, if Frank's right, which is that it's, it's no longer edgy enough. It's no longer something that is 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 sort of risque because it's now the law, yeah. you know, where it, it, it is or it's no longer illegal. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't think there's I, unfortunately, I, I think that is one of those sad truths is that, you know, something like this is great for a while. And then it's sort of people run out of ideas and they want to move on to something else. It's like Cyber Monday, isn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah. retail is retail now, so Black Friday is just as busy as a you know an e-commerce. Yeah. Yeah. So Cyber Monday feels a bit outdated as well. Um, yes. Frank, just to finish because we're we're running a bit long. Um, we've got PR decoded coming up on the tenth and eleventh of October. We launched the launched that uh, today, and it's all about purposeful business. And uh, we did a piece, so check it out. We we would love to see you in Chicago in person again. It's going to be a great conference. But we did a uh, Chris Daniels did a nice piece for us on corporate America and purposeful business, didn't he, last week? He did, yeah. And, um, you know, it's funny. I was talking to somebody earlier that was that was questioning uh, just how much, uh, how many purpose campaigns uh, and how many public-facing purpose campaigns uh, are purpose-washing uh, or how much of them are, you know, really a sincere part of a company's business model. And, um, you know, look, there's a lot of pressure on brands to do this right because there's a lot of skepticism about it up there. We talked about, you know, share buybacks in this article and, you know, CEO salaries. And um, it, there's a lot of skepticism about purpose washing, you know, like the, the green washing days from years past. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really critical that businesses know how to do this right. 
Yeah, it's one of the biggest issues in business. I think we'll come back to that a lot more, but uh, it's a very interesting piece and well worth checking out. So do have that on your calendar, PR Decoded. Uh, we've got our Healthcare Summit and our Healthcare and Pharma Awards on the 10th of May in New York City at City Winery. Looking forward to that and seeing everybody at that. The Global Awards are in London on the 18th of May. Very much looking forward to going back to London for the first time in two years. And uh, the Brand Film Awards, they'll be virtual on the 26th of May. But uh, Tim, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you and uh, talk about your career and ongoing career. And uh, yeah, wishing you well. Thank you for having me. Love to see see you guys. Yeah, going to see you in person, hopefully, in a couple of weeks. And um, Frank, always good to chat. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on, Steve. All right, but that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit PRWeek.com.